Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. We've got a fantastic premise for our Byword Big Talk today. Dave and I get to play act as screenwriters for comic book and nerdy content, making it to the big screen. But first, it's not a complete episode without nerd news. Dave, you're getting a little cartoony now. What's going on? Animaniacs is back, and I cannot overstate how big of a deal this is to me personally. On November 20th of this year, a staple of my childhood is set to return with brand new episodes. So Animaniacs is an animated series originally made uh, its first debut in 1993. It was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, uh, so it has a great pedigree. Uh, It followed the misadventures of the Warner siblings, Yakko, Wacko, and Dot, after they escaped their water tower prison on the Warner Studios lot. The original series had incredibly zany humor, like Looney Tunes on steroids. The humor was also really layered. Uh, Many jokes were aimed squarely at adults and would go straight over kids' heads. And and so even now, going back to this series, uh, it still tickles my funny bone. The show also introduced some legendary animated uh, characters, such as Pinky and the Brain, two lab rats trying to take over the world, and they even got their own spin-off series at one point. So Animaniacs featured tons of hu- humorous music, it set uh, the record for the most daytime Emmy Awards in the field of outstanding achievement in music direction and composition for an animated series, winning three times. And now the show is reuniting the original voice cast and premiering 13 brand new episodes on Hulu on November 20th. I'm so stoked about this show coming back. I own all the DVD sets of the original run. As a kid, this show hit the sweet spot of my sense of humor, and as an adult, even more so. I still use some clips from this show in my lessons as a teacher, since they often tackled history and geography in humorous ways. This ranks as one of my top five animated shows of all time, and I can't wait to see these new episodes. I really hope they can recapture the magic, that this isn't just some kind of nostalgia cash-in, that they're bringing the band back together and it's going to be as good as the original run. Chris, what are you thinking about this? Hello, nurse! I am stoked (laughs) for this, my friend. Oh, man. You know what? Now that I think about this, when I saw you put this in our shared document, I heard the legend himself, Rob Paulson, tease this project earlier this year on, a, on another podcast. I think it was This Week in Marvel. He was like uh, interviewed, and he was talking about like pitching this again, getting back together with Spielberg and all of this. And let's just – I want to like detour for just a second because Rob Paulson does not get enough credit for the icon in voice acting that he is. He was Raphael in the original TMNT series. He came back in the 2012 animated series, and it was Donatello. He was Yakko in that. He was Dr. Otto Scratch and Sniff. He was Pinky. Okay, brain. Like, you can't beat this guy. Like, he is unparalleled. Uh, Land Before Time, Mask of the Animated Series. He was in Jimmy Neutron. So, yeah, I'm a big, huge Rob Paulson fan. And I heard it straight from the source that this was coming back. And, And to see this actually hit, like you know, headline news. It was just fantastic for me to see. But um, yeah, I can't be more excited about this. I mean, like, my wife and I usually, like, look at each other almost on a nightly basis to be like, so what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. 
So, I mean, like, this is, it's, it's just like those quips from your childhood, all those, those earworm quotes. I remember when Prince passed away, and, like, one of the first things that I saw was that scene from Animaniacs. You referenced, like, the humor aimed at adults, and, like, that Prince scene is, like, pitch perfect for me. Um, yeah, and I'm totally glad to see the whole band getting back together. And I also read, like, in the article on, uh, I think it was Deadline or Deadspin, one of those articles, it was due to the popularity on Netflix, how, like, kids were finding this for the first time and, like, just raving about it. Um, and then they were like, okay, let's let's do this thing. But, yeah, so I'm super stoked for this. It seems like that kind of sense of humor, that kind of approach to animation is almost become cyclical now. You know, we have the older Looney Tunes and then they started going away. Then you had that, that renaissance of, of Animaniacs and to some extent Tiny Toons, uh, Pinky in the Brain, Freakazoid, that really over-the-top uh, animated humor. And then it faded away again and it seems to maybe hopefully now be making a comeback. It's always been uh, my favorite approach to uh, humorous animation is really over-the-top, zany, how inventive can you get with your animation? I mean, the art on here was absolutely incredible. So yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm so excited to have this back. I really hope that uh, that they can pull this off a second time around. Now, Chris, what is your big nerd news story for the week? Uh, Captain Marvel 2 is getting a new director. Uh, Candyman's Nia DaCosta takes over the director's chair from Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck who turned in a $1.13 billion blockbuster for the original Captain Marvel. Um, and DaCosta was hand-picked by Jordan Peele for the Candyman Project. Now, that movie has not been released yet due to the pandemic, uh, you know, pushing it back. But the trailer uh, went live a couple months ago, and it just set the internet ablaze with anticipation. Um, so, and, and you can't think of, of right now in Hollywood, you can't look for a bigger endorsement than Jordan Peele with, you know, get out with, uh, us. And, um, he even did like the new twilight zone for CBS all access. So everything he does, he's got that Midas effect too. everything he turns, he touches, turns to gold. Um, and she project, this projects to be the biggest budgeted film directed by a black woman since Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time. And she's only 30 years old, which is just mind-blowing and, and super exciting. Um, and this falls in line with Marvel's commitment to diverse hiring practices that they've stated publicly over the past couple of weeks and months. Um, and I'm really excited for this because it's a fresh face. It's, it's um, a new voice. From what I've seen from the Candyman, you know, stuff, it looks super interesting and like like a really interesting take on it. Um, and my favorite MCU films um, are those who are that when they hire a visionary director, like a, a kind of a quirky individual with a unique vision and a complex idea, and just let the artist paint. I think of James Gunn with the Guardians movies. I think of Taika Waititi. Um, who I've praised a lot on this podcast with uh, Thor Ragnarok and even the Russo brothers with, you know, winter soldier, infinity war and Endgame. They had a distinct vision of what they wanted to accomplish. And there wasn't a lot of studio oversight that unfortunately have in a lot of films. So I'm really excited to see where this goes because captain Marvel was a fantastic film. Um, and I truly enjoyed it and I can't wait to see where we go next. Um, I'm, I'm especially hoping for uh, adult Monica Rambo, which has been teased in WandaVision, but uh, I'm, I'm super excited to see where the future of this film franchise goes. 
Yeah, so I'm actually really excited about this as well. Uh, I've not seen Nia DaCosta's directorial debut, uh, debut, which was A Little Woods, but I really think I need to. Uh, the movie flew completely under my radar, and based on some uh, plot synopses that I've read online, it looks really interesting. The Candyman remake did not fly under my radar. I really wanted to see this movie. I was very, very excited for it. And then, of course, the pandemic delayed it. Yeah, the trailer looked really good. And Candyman uh, is such a classic uh, franchise anyways. And and to have a fresh new voice take that on, uh, I I was very excited for that. Now, not being able to judge uh, her directorial work firsthand, obviously... um, I can't really comment on that. I've not seen her first movie. Her second movie has not been released yet. But I am excited. I am thrilled even that Marvel Studios is so committed to bringing in uh, auteurs, a variety of directors, each with their own approach. Um, And really young new voices. This being only her third movie and she's handed one of the biggest, you know, sequel to one of the biggest blockbusters of the last few years is absolutely incredible. I think Marvel Comics could learn a lot from Marvel Studios in this regard. Instead of bringing the same writers in over and over again, maybe foster some fresh new voices, you know, bring some people up from the indies that that maybe have not had a shot at, you know, one of the big two yet. I think that would go a long way in diversifying their lineup and maybe, you know, capturing readers in, in the comic book industry again. So I'm excited. I loved Captain Marvel as well. Uh, she's a, a fantastic character. I like her in the comic books. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the sequel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you're young and hungry like that, you know, as a writer, as a director, as a creative individual, like, I think that can be even more potent than someone who, you know, comes with a lot of accolades. So I think uh, it would be advantageous, you know, for for the the comics world to to pounce on that as well, because you're getting people when they're on the upswing and that positive slope in their you know, career. So I definitely agree with that. And I'm super excited to see what, what comes of this. All right, nerds, that squares away our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back from this, our first break, we're going to play the part of screenwriters. Dave and I have each taken three pieces of nerdy material, uh, in this case, comic books, and we're going to, you know, be screenwriters and we're going to advertise these as, you know, things that we should be brought to the big screen. Stick around. We are back here on the Nerd Byword, and our Byword big talk for this week um, is we took comic book arcs that we want to adapt to film. Um, I think, uh, if memory serves, Dave, this kind of spawned from previous discussions we've had on, you know, some comic book studios and, and really struggled to seem to. Uh, get good stories for their films and things kind of fall flat. So You mean Warner Brothers, in other oh, words. Oh, yeah, I just, I didn't want to seem biased <laughs> as as the Marvel oh, guy. Lord. I didn't want to be biased, but I wanted to. No, you're right. But, um, so, we each took three comic book arcs, uh, excuse me, comic book arcs that were very special to us, and we're going to kind of give our own pitch to one another and uh, as to why these should be brought to screen. Dave, what is first of your three projects? So I'm looking at a movie uh, adaptation of a uh, 12-issue comic book limited series published between 2003 and 2004, written by Mark Wade and drawn by Lionel Francis Yu. And that is Superman Birthright. Now look, I love Superman, period. I've mentioned this several times already. 
it's incredible to me that we can't get a good Superman movie into the theaters. And it never seems to really be the actor's fault. Uh, Brandon Routh did a nice job in Superman Returns, and Henry Cavill is quite good too in the role. It, the problem is always story. The people writing these movies seem to lack a fundamental understanding of Superman, of who he is and, and how he operates and why he does what he does, what his moral center is. And because of that, we have screenwriters constantly trying to reinvent the character rather than adapting the character and his stories. So my proposal here is to use Superman Birthright as a starting point. The book is a modern retelling of Superman's origin and his first adventure, and for a while was even considered the canon origin of Superman in the DC Universe, until it was replaced several years later by Jeff John's Secret Origin miniseries. Now, John uh, Byrne's Man of Steel was a great series in the 1980s, but it was less about Superman as a character, and more about establishing him in the rebooted post-crisis DC Universe. You know, like, there was an issue, here's how he met Batman and teamed up with him for the first time. This story, Superman Birthright, is really about Superman through and through. Uh, an early part of the story takes uh, place when... Uh, Clark, as a young reporter, uh, travels to Africa to cover an ethnic conflict there, which really establishes Superman as sort of a citizen of the world. Uh, these scenes also feature a fantastic tie-in to his costume as he learns about honoring ancestors through clothing from uh, one of the characters he meets. Uh, the way he is portrayed in that particular situation uh, shows that he is fallible, he experiences doubt, he is not this boring... Uh, person of perfection like some of Superman's critics sometimes like to paint him, but he is the essence of Superman. He's always hopeful. He refuses to quit. Lex Luthor is the main villain of the story, which can be problematic because we've seen some less than ideal adaptations of that character. But in this story, he is really the best version of himself, a rich businessman and scientist well-respected, combining the best interpretations of the character into one. The climax of the story features Luther staging a fake Kryptonian invasion to discredit Superman, and he blankets the city of Metropolis in this kryptonite. So Superman is in Metropolis fighting these mercenaries that are acting as if they are Kryptonian without most of his powers, and he continues to fight. He never gives up. The essence of Superman in this series, Clark has this uh, interesting power to see the aura that surrounds all living things. And when something dies, he sees it fade away. And that's so. this fits so much with Superman's character, this idea that he sees this in people, and that gives him an additional reverence for life. He's even depicted as a vegetarian. Uh, I found these things really consistent with the Superman character, although it did cause some controversy among fans. Even the notion of the S on his chest meaning hope, which was used in the Man of Steel movie uh, from a few years ago, comes directly from Birthright. So there's just a lot to love here. Now we can quibble about the details of the story a little bit here and there, sure. But ultimately, Birthright gets Superman right. He's bright, hopeful, deeply moral, the ultimate good guy. And that's what I want in a Superman movie. Let's not reinvent the wheel, let's put Superman up on the big screen in a quintessential Superman story. Chris, what do you think?
Yeah, absolutely. And I did most of my homework with your suggestions. I only got halfway through this series, but it I'm I'm also taking my time with it because it's it's such a masterpiece to me and I'm thoroughly enjoying it and I think I may have been converted to a Superman fan like based solely on this series just reading the first 6 issues. Um, one of the first things that I noticed um, was it was a little problematic on the opening uh, in Africa. I felt like it was a little bit like a trope of a white savior. But I think if you were to make that into a screen uh, adaptation, you can easily update. This was written in 2003. You can easily yes. update that to 2020. That's a super easy fix. Um, I see what they were going for with that um, storyline. But I, you know, I, a couple of tweaks here and there, easy fix. Um the one thing out of the first six issues that I appreciated the most is that it fixed everything that was wrong with Kevin Costner's Jonathan Kent from Man of Steel. It explains to you why he is so cautious about Clark revealing himself to the world at large. And like, you know, like the deep complexity of, you know, being conflicted about not being his biological father. And, uh, you know, I could really relate to that. Um, I'm a, a father of a blended family, and some of my children are biological, and some of my children are not biologically mine. I don't use the term step because I love my children equally, biology or no biology. So I could relate to that. Um, and that was super powerful and impactful for me. And I can't wait to finish the second half of this. Um, and I totally agree with what I've seen in the first six issues from Lex Luthor. Um, his, it, like, it makes it work. It's like Obadiah Stane was in the first Iron Man film, but even better. Um, and one of my favorite parts is Lois Lane. I know next to nothing about this character with my limited... Um, you know, exposure to Superman other than like the less than stellar um, portrayal by Amy uh, Adams. I'm not, not a big fan of, of that choice. Um, she's great in other things, but I just, I don't get Lois vibes from her. Um, but Lois Lane in this series is just fantastic. Like one of my favorite panels is when uh, Perry White is scribbling on this legal pad, like reasons to fire her and reasons to keep her. It's just fantastic. And she's just like this tenacious bulldog reporter. And and now it all makes sense to me, Dave, why you have a journalism background. As a Superman fan growing up, seeing all that, that's probably why you went into journalism. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Yeah, the, the, the passion of writing came in part from, you know, wanting to emulate Superman. I will freely admit that. And to pick up on your Lois Lane thing, I will say that Lois Lane, written at her best, is probably one of my top three all-time favorite female comic book characters. It's just so often uh, writers relegate her to, like, the damsel in distress when she is so much more than that. She is, she is so independent and strong, a woman of action, uh, tenacious, stubborn in the best possible way, um, doesn't suffer foolishness. I absolutely adore that about the character. And I'm going to say it right here. I'm a big fan of Amy Adams, but when they were casting for a new Superman movie, I had my fingers crossed for Rachel McAdams. I don't know why, but there's something Lois about her. This the uh, the fast talking quippiness that Lois brings to the table. I could see uh, Rachel McAdams really pull off extremely well. I I can see that in like the Doctor Strange film. Like I could see that easily. What she had with Stephen Strange in that film, and just those very few scenes that she was in. I totally see that. All right, Chris. What is your first uh, adaptation from page to screen? 
Um, my first adaptation for Page to Scream comes from one of my favorite comic book writers ever, and that is J.M. DeMatteis um, and his work on Spider-Man. Now, I know what you're thinking. Craven's Last Hunt. Craven's Last Hunt. Craven's Last Hunt. Spider-Man fans have been chanting and begging for Craven's Last Hunt on the screen for the longest time. And while I agree, I love Craven's Last Hunt. It's a fantastic arc. I go back to it regularly. It's not even my favorite JMD Spider-Man. Pause for shock and awe. My favorite JMD Spider-Man are his work on Spectacular Spider-Man, a B-book, if you will, um, and a little-known story arc called The Child Within. That comes from Spectacular Spider-Man that he did with Sal Buscema on art, who's just an icon himself. Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man issues 178 to 184, um, and it centers around Harry Osborn, um, who for years growing up as a Spider-Man fan was touted as like the best friend of Peter Parker. And as I was doing my Spider-Man read-through, I did all 800 plus issues of Amazing Spider-Man first, um, and I didn't really see it. Like nothing in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man convinced me that I'm supposed to care about Peter Parker and Harry Osborn's relationship. You know, back from the the Silver Age 60s with with Stan and Ramita, um, you know, those pages. Like he just seemed like this snarky you know, trust fund kid. Sure, they roomed together, but I didn't really like see an impactful relationship there. And and then after I finished all of the uh, issues in Amazing Spider-Man, I went to Spectacular, the B book. Um, and in Spider-Man fans will know that the B book, Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, uh, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, those are more like grounded issues with the sort sporting cast of Peter Parker. And this is where I struck gold for the Harry. Uh, and Peter relationship. The Child Within, 178 to 184 of Spectacular. That's where you find, like, so many complex things. So you find Harry Osborn really struggling with what it means to be Norman Osborn's son. And, like, you watch him slowly lose it mentally because of the legacy that his father left him. Um, the Green Goblin, what it means to be the son of Norman Osborn, what it means to be the son of the Green Goblin. And then that is juxtaposed with um, a character that fans of Craven's Last Hunt will know very well, and that's Vermin. And Vermin, uh, they tell his backstory of how he was physically and sexually abused by his father. It's just just really deep. And what I appreciate about, uh, about JMD's writing is that he tackles big issues like with Craven's Last Hunt, even you get into like deep adult, like this is not for for children under the age of fifteen or sixteen type content. Like this is these are comic books for adults, and they tackle big, momentous, uh, you know, emotional issues that that grown ups deal with. Um, so you see like Harry tackling family legacy, and then you see Vermin tackling family legacy, and how it has turned him into the beast that he is, because of something in his childhood that has, like, just twisted him, um, and it's just, it's just really an emotional read, so that's Child Within 178 to 184, and then you get into, um, the Osborne legacy in 189, Spider-Man and Harry as the Goblin, you know, facing off, um, issue 189 and then probably one of my favorite issues in comics that i've ever read and that's spectacular spider-man 200 the best of enemies um it's just 
this this big back and forth battle, the entire issue, the double sized issue of, of Harry and Peter um, going back and forth. Like like Harry knows Peter's identity as Spider Man, and he's going to tell you know everyone and this whole thing. And it, it's just a really monumental thing, and that it makes me buy this friendship that I was sold for so many years as a Spider-Man fan, Harry and Peter, Harry and Peter. And it was finally here that I struck gold. Before I I comment on your selection, I just want to say this up front. How in the world have we not gotten a movie based on Craven's last hunt? Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm one of those Spider-Man fans. I want this movie. (laughs) We keep rebooting Spider-Man and we keep trying to do the same thing sort of over and over again in some way, always retelling his origin story in some different way. And there's so many classic villains that just never get a chance to be on the big screen. I want to see Kraven's last hunt. I will go so far as to say that I think Kraven should be in the the next Spider-Man movie. It's perfect. Spider-Man has been outed and he's on the run. Why not bring in an expert who can hunt the spider in the man? Like, it's perfect. Bring in Craven, Even just as a side character, I want to see an adaptation of that character on the big screen. Now, as for The Child Within and The Best of Enemies, I've not read those. I wasn't even quite aware of those issues and, and how they relate to the, the Peter and Harry uh, relationship. But I'm very interested in reading those now. Because I think that is one of the elements that, regrettably, uh, hasn't worked on the big screen at all up to this point. Um, in Sam Raimi's trilogy, there was good build-up in Spider-Man 1 and 2. And then Spider-Man 3 just fell apart. Um, and then the less said about uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 and its depiction of Harry Osborn, the better, because that that was a very very poorly executed, rushed. Um, it, it was it was a mess. So to have a movie that really explores that relationship on the big screen would be fantastic. And this seems to be the best place to to get inspiration from. So I, I would be all for this. Yeah, I have even seen like even like fan art made of of Craven and I totally agree with with where you're going. I think Craven is one of like the most co- complex villains and like the the most well thought out villains in in Spidey's mythos and one like if you don't think about Craven's last hunt like he, if you're not thinking about that like you just forget like how awesome Spider-Man's rogues gallery is. I mean like you've got Doc Ock, you've got Green Goblin, you've got Craven, you've got the Vulture all of these fantastic villains. Kingpin was originally a Spider-Man villain. You know, you usually associate him with Daredevil, but he started off in ASM 50 with Spider-Man. So yeah, like you've got a real murderer's row there. Uh, Dave, what is number two on your list? All right, let's get weird. It is weird. I had no idea. I read this one, guys. I had no idea what was going on the whole time. But Dark Side <laughs> was cool. <laughs> so we we've opened our very first episode with a discussion of the notion that uh, Justice League is uh, getting a Snyder cut. And although I am cautiously optimistic that it's at least going to be worth watching, my, my biggest complaint about the Justice League movie w- was actually the source material it's based on. It seems like in recent years, whether it's animated movies or theatrical movies, people keep deferring to the new 52 version of the Justice League. The lineup and the origin story, which was written by Jeff Johns, which is serviceable and fine, but is certainly not the high point of Justice League comic books. And I would say one of the most recent high points is Grant Morrison's run with Howard Porter. 
I can't even begin to describe the impact Morrison's JLA book had on me as a kid. It came along at just the right time to completely capture my imagination. And it's no secret that Morrison uh, comes with big ideas, with big thoughts, and, and he always shoots for the moon with his books. And sometimes that works, uh, as it did in JLA, and sometimes it doesn't quite work, uh, as in Final Crisis. Although, even there, uh, I think that book has uh, quite a few fans, it just didn't quite work for me. But his Justice League was fantastic. Morrison was basically brought on to make the Justice League a really big deal again. For years, the League had been filled with second stringers and side characters. And many of those stories were great, don't get me wrong. But Morrison was about bringing in the big seven of DC Comics back together in a League. It was a huge deal at the time when this book hit the stands. And there are so many memorable stories in this run. And they still totally hold up. I cannot for the life of me understand why cartoons and movie adaptations keep, you know, basing themselves on the New 52 incarnation when there's this wealth of, of inspiration from Grant Morrison's JLA. So my personal favorite in his run is probably Rock of Ages, a story that features some of my favorite stuff. There's time travel, there's a dystopian future, uh, there's a fantastic Injustice gang to rival the JLA. It has all the big characters in it, except Wonder Woman, because in her own book at the time, she was dead, uh, because, you know, comic books. Also featured in this book is Jack Kirby's creation, The Fourth World. So we get some Darkseid and Metron and some of these other characters that Kirby created. So naturally it's going to be big, it's going to be epic, it's going to be space-based. The plot involves a MacGuffin that is referred to usually as the Philosopher's Stone in this book. And it's a miniature model of the universe. And whoever holds this model of the universe has basically unlimited power to reshape reality. Lex Luthor, who forms an Injustice gang to take out the Justice League because, hey, Superman is leading the Justice League and he wants none of that, has this artifact, but he doesn't quite know what he's got there or what kind of power it has. In fact, none of the major players at the beginning of this book have any idea what this thing is or what it does. So when the Justice League fights the Injustice gang and ultimately wins, Superman destroys the object before... Lex Luthor can use it, and this creates a dark timeline where Darkseid is able to take control of the universe, and this is sort of the dark future that a small group of JLA members end up in as they are trying to find this Philosopher's Stone and rescue it from being destroyed. We have uh, this crazy dark alternate future where Grant Morrison just goes completely crazy with his big imagination and it's it's absolutely bonkers um, but in the best possible way obviously some streamlining would have to take place to make this a big summer blockbuster that's accessible to every audience but the core of the story is fantastic and it is littered with so many cool moments Martian Manhunter for example, is a character that just does not get enough credit. They finally included him on, you know, the Superman, uh, uh, the Supergirl, pardon me, uh, series on the CW. And even there, although he's incredibly well played, they still don't bring him to full justice. It's like they have decided to erase Martian Manhunter out of uh, a ju the Justice League, which is such a shame. It's such a great character. 
Uh, so he has these shape-shifting abilities, and at one point in the story, he literally shape-shifts his brain to approximate the Joker's insanity. There's also a great moment for Batman where he decides to take on Lex Luthor using hostile takeover strategies from the business world. So you got Lex Luthor businessman versus Bruce Wayne businessman. This is not the kind of thing that writers commonly do with the character. And here it's just this this throwaway moment and it's really, really cool. So this is the kind of epic the Justice League deserves on the big screen. Let's get away from the new 52 version. Let's let's mine uh, the absolute bonkers genius that is JLA from Grant Morrison. Chris, what do you think? So I was super excited when I saw that you had placed this uh, in the doc here. Um, I recognized Grant Morrison's name immediately. I had just finished his new X-Men run um, like over the summer. And I knew that he really made his his, uh, you know, mustard over at DC. So I was like, okay, so Grant Morrison, he's famous for DC. I love his new X-Men. Cool, let's dive in. And for like the, you know, it's only like a five or six issue arc. I was like, what is going on here? (laughs) Um, Superman is blue. Um, This is a different Green Lantern. Now I, I, I that's the one thing that jumped out to me is like, now I know why there's so much fan love online for the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. He was fantastic as like, like the first person perspective for throughout most of this arc. So I really appreciated that. Um, And so like the Green Arrow, who I know is Oliver Queen, this is his son, correct? Yes. Connor Hawk. Okay. So the only thing that like I really was like, Ugh, and you referenced this, is Wonder Woman's dead, so it's like a sausage fest. There are no women anywhere in this story. So that's the only thing, and I'm like, yeah. Um, my favorite thing about this whole arc was the betrayal of Darkseid, and not even like they didn't even show you Darkseid. It was like some Hitchcock horror stuff where they were like, Darkseid is coming. Dark side is coming, and just like the threat of him, like you know, maybe like his boot, like being portrayed on a panel is like, oh snap, this is what Dark Side should be, and like that's that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit like anxious about the Snyder Cut is like, why are you going straight to full Dark Side in like really your first team up film? That's like going to Thanos in like Avengers One in 2012. That's the, that's the new 52 thing, Chris. That was the first arc that Jeff Johns wrote on the new 52 Justice League book. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not a fan. Um, so, um, yeah, I really, I really dug this, and it does get super weird, but, like, as a sci-fi spaced-out fan, like, I, I dug it. Like, I, I really appreciated this, like, and it was really, really cool. Um, I love Martian Manhunter. Like, it is, he is one of my favorite characters in the DC Universe. So, to see him get a little bit of uh, a justice here, pun intended, and and some love, like, I was happy to see that. I, I totally dug the scene that you referenced, and, like, there's, like, a lighted path when he mutates his brain to be like the jokers and like you see the arrows pointing out of this maze and it says ha 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 like down the whole path it's super great but yeah i I really i really enjoyed these six issues what's super fascinating to me about morrison's run is that when he started out they gave him you know the big seven 
They gave him Superman, they gave him Batman, they gave him Wonder Woman, they gave him Flash, they gave him Green Lantern, they gave him Martian Manhunter, uh, they gave him Aquaman, everything that he wanted. And then within just a few issues, it's like the individual books just went crazy. So, you know, Wonder Woman is dead, and they decide to turn Superman into this electric blue dude, and even through all these weird changes, Morrison was able to take lemons and make, not lemonade, but basically champagne. Like, even the moments that he writes about how Superman uses his new powers are just cool. And yeah, he's one really of the cool. few And he's one of the few writers who put in that effort and was like, okay, we're gonna do something crazy. In a different arc, he actually creates an electromagnetic field from trying to stop the moon from f- crashing into the Earth with these new powers. So Grant Morrison took something that was weird and awkward and still managed to make it look really, really cool in JLA. And I always really appreciated that about that run. Now, what I every time I looked at Superman, I was like, this is so 90s right now, this character design. Like, he looked like a big Crayola cyan marker. Like, that's exactly what Superman looked like the entire time. Yeah, I can agree with that. It was a really bizarre arc. And I'm just going to hit you with a little bit of knowledge. That arc got weirder because then later on they split him into two different Supermen. One was in a blue suit and one was in a red suit. And they were both electric energy based. It was some really bizarre stuff. (laughs) So Chris, what is your next page to screen adaptation? So I had to put something X-Men here. Um, And I initially started off with like a hybrid mix of uh, Morrison's new X-Men and um, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. But we're going to get to Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men in a future episode. We'll tease that later on. So I I scrapped that idea and I had to do something with mutants. So I'm going full on Age of Apocalypse. Now it is a little bit problematic because we don't really have like a cohesive... Um, cinematic history with the X-Men, you know, with the Fox turnover and the Fox garbage that is all those movies, save maybe one or two. But Age of Apocalypse is like one of my favorite, you know, comic events. Like, um, if you haven't yet, go look at Marvel Unlimited. They have like a 45 um, issue, like read in this order. You can find like reading orders online. It's like, I'm a sucker for like an alternate universe. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I I enjoyed um, JLA Rock of Ages and um, why I recommended uh, my nerd commendation for this week. But I love alternate universes. Um, I really appreciated John Jackson Miller's um, description of this um, in in the episode from a few weeks ago is like you look at that point where everything turned. uh, I'm paraphrasing what he said. What, where did it go, quote unquote, wrong? Or where did it go differently? So, like, my personal favorite mutant character is Magneto. And in Age of Apocalypse, you get to see him as the leader of the X-Men. Like, he is the good guy. And it's so cool to, like, be a big Magneto, Magneto fan. Because, like, my favorite villains are the ones that you kind of vibe with. Like, um, I've referenced this before, but like Killmonger and Black Panther, most of the stuff, I was like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, wait. And like the last minute, you're like, eh, I don't agree with that part so much. So like to see him in like the hero role, like it was like a really fun time for me to read that that storyline. Um, and then, you know, like to see like different characters like Logan um, is with Gene in this in this universe and um, 
dark beast, Hank McCoy is this like evil mad scientist who like experiments on humans and mutant bodies. And like, it's just like you take like uh, a character like Hank McCoy, who's one of my favorites and like, who is always trying to like further mutant kind and, and, and help, you know, mutant kind uh, to the best of his abilities. But like the complete mirror of that uh, is like someone who is trying to like, just do all this genetic testing and mutilation. And it's super, super interesting. Um, Mr. Sinister, who's a great villain, um, factors in heavily. Um, and then of course, Apocalypse himself, like, um, you know, it's, it's super great. It's everything um, that we wanted X-Men Apocalypse to be that we didn't get in 2017 or whenever that film came out. But um, yeah, so like the premise for this, I'll backtrack a little bit. The premise for this book is in uh, Uncanny X-Men proper. Um, Legion, if you've seen the show, FX show Legion, that is the son of Charles Xavier um, and Ga- uh, Gabriel Haller. Like he he wants to, he feels like Magneto is this evil curse upon mutant kind and he's going to hurt his father. So like he wants to go kill Magneto. Legion wants to kill Magneto. And instead his father steps in front of the blast and he kills Xavier. And then like killing Xavier sets forth this whole alternate future where the age of apocalypse is in rain, but it's like super fun. You have a lot of great like tie-in series and I usually don't read tie-in series, but these were really great. You have like an Excalibur with, with Nightcrawler and his mother Mystique teaming up and they're like swashbuckling pirate mutants. It's great. You have, um, you have Gambit leading a team uh, in one of the titles. That's great. You have generation next with some, like mind blowing art uh, by Chris Bashalo, like one of the greatest artists of like the nineties. And like, that's Bashalo in all of his weird grotesque awesomeness. So like the art alone from age of apocalypse is just like a masterpiece. So if you haven't read age of apocalypse, I highly recommend it, but I think this would be really, really fun to take characters that at least we've been exposed to um, in the films and like, just turn it all on its head. Cause I'm a sucker for an alternate universe. Yeah. So, um, one of the problems that I always had with the Fox X-Men movies is that they tried so hard not to be comic book inspired movies, right down to not using iconic costumes for the characters. And this story is not something I've read yet, but I looked it up and it looks unabashedly comic booky. And I'd be totally in to seeing an X-Men movie that is willing to acknowledge the source material. I originally actually had planned to read this before recording this episode, but the complete collection is like four trade paperbacks, and and hefty trade paperbacks too, blew my mind. So I knew there was no way I was going to find the time to actually read this thing before our episode. I I will say this. uh, I think that, as you said, we don't really have a cohesive X-Men depiction with what happened with Fox. And so I could see this movie working extremely well as like a trilogy ender. Like, let's say the MCU establishes their X-Men, and then at the end of like a cycle of movies, this is their grand finale, their their Infinity War, basically. I could see that working really well, because as much as I love alternate timelines as well, they're a ton of fun. But usually they only work when you have a solid understanding and familiarity with the original characters, so then you can enjoy the twist on the original. So basically they have to be well established first before you can warp them. And I would love to see this on the big screen as a sort of 
uh, this is a cycle of X-Men movies and this is the grand finale of a first cycle or something like that. Give the MCU a chance to, to put their stamp on what the X-Men should be before they warp the characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse here because I'm saving my project for introducing the X-Men into the MCU for a future episode that we're going to work on um, with our dream movie scenarios. But yeah, I totally agree. This would be like the end, like the cap, the end cap on a trilogy. And like, so now that like, oh, I've seen Storm be this and this and this and this. Oh, wait, that's, is that Storm? Wait, no, what happened? So now like it actually is a meaningful turn. But yeah, Dave, you're going super weird with your last one again. What you got? Well, I have eclectic tastes in comic books, but there is a whole, there is a, a preface here before I can get too deep into it. Uh, so my my last pick is really that I want to see a Witchblade movie. Um, but before we can really talk about what I think the movie should be like, we're going to have to talk a little bit about what Witchblade is and why I actually have some problems with the property. I have a really complex relationship with this series. I've read the whole run. It's about 180 issues or so. The comic was created in 1995 at Top Cow, an imprint of Image Comics. And a bunch of people were involved in the creation of the book, including uh, Mark Silvestri and Michael Turner. The book focuses on a New York City detective, Sarah Pazzini, who comes into the possession of a mystical artifact known as the Witchblade. This artifact has been worn as a, a weapon and an armor throughout history by a series of female warriors, including Joan of Arc. In a lot of ways, early Witchblade represented some of the very worst of the 1990s comic book scene, and really the very worst of early image. Art before story, cheesecake, fan service art, etc. Witchblade was especially egregious when it came to the visual depiction of Pazzini. Every time she used the Witchblade, it extended an armor over her that conveniently ripped her clothes and was really more metal bikini than armor. It was weird because I had a problem with this and it at the same time there was something to this property from the very beginning. The story had these flashes of brilliance, the origin story for the Witchblade, which only bonds with women and can never be wielded by men, has some really interesting feminist undertones, and I'm quite unsure why the early book was so unwilling to tap into that. Sarah herself ends up being this really incredibly complex character, and the longer the series went on, the more fascinating she became. There was a, a glimmer of something special in those early books. But then so often, when I would try to read it, the execution of that core concept just left me feeling bewildered. And then Ron Mars came along. And the series finally started turning into what it should have been all along, which is a dark, supernatural detective series. His first arc, Witch Hunt, is a, a decent jumping-on point for the series, and I think would form a good foundation for a movie. Now, I will say that later on, his book became the, becomes even stronger, like Ron Mars's run on Witchblade goes from strength to strength, and it builds, and it becomes better and better. But as an entry point to introduce audiences to uh, Sarah Pizzini and her world, this would be a really good starting point. So in this story, Sarah is attacked by something and put in a coma. When she awakens, she joins with another cop, 
uh, sent to investigate the incident to try to figure out what happened to her. In the course of the investigation, she uncovers a conspiracy of clergy that want to summon a monster from another dimension and install it as their god, basically. And she fights monsters, and, and at the end even fights what looks to be a, a dragon for all intents and purposes. More importantly, though, the cheesecake is significantly dialed back. In fact, if memory serves, there's basically none in the book's interior, uh, with only one or two covers still featuring that approach to the artwork. Now, when Sarah Pizzini wields the Witchblade, a partial armor extends over her clothes rather than shredding them. And in the climax of the story, when she fully activates the Witchblade, it provides her with actual full body armor, which, you know, given the circumstances, actually makes sense. Mars's run was great. It's not perfect by any means, but it improves so much over the original and attempts to realize some of the conceptual potential. It's unbelievable to me that that took almost 80 issues to get there. The instinct of Hollywood is to try to adapt origin stories. But so much of what happened in those first 80 issues could be ignored for a movie adaptation. In fact, I believe the initial incident of this book, Witch Hunt, which is when Sarah is attacked by a monster, could easily also serve as the moment she first encounters the Witchblade. So this story, with some tweaks, would form a great basis for a dark, sort of horror-tinged, supernatural superhero movie. Something that I don't think we, we've really seen yet. Uh, we've seen so many different superhero movies with, you know, tinges of other um, franchises or other genres, like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, superheroes in space, or uh, The Winter Soldier, superhero as a spy thriller. Uh, let's do superhero as a horror story. And I think Witchblade is the perfect property to do this with. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And this is like a super short arc. It's like five or six issues. And I, I was able to read this. Um, I gave you difficult homework. You gave me easy homework. So <laughs> sorry about that. But um, no, I feel like as, as I was reading this, like the art especially, um, it felt like something I had seen like on the USA Network back in like the early 2000s. Or, or there, was a ser- there was a series adaptation on TNT, oh. actually. It ran for one season. But it was not a great adaptation of the source material. They, they There was no budget for special effects or anything. So it came down much more to being like a uh, a crime thriller with a cop conspiracy or something. And, and very little of the actual Witchblade was used in the series. But yes, you are correct. It was on TNT for one season. I was just speculating. But yeah, apparently my intuition <laughs> led to something. But um but yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and and at first glance, I had the same reservations that you shared of like the over sexualized, you know, portrayal of women, and it's such a such a trope in the '90s, um, especially with image from what I've seen of of that stuff. Um, but like when you get down to the nitty gritty story, like I I love a good like detective story, like. Um, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan and like any, any of these like detective shows, like I'm, I'm, I'm in on. And that's what it felt like in like right in the, in the meat and potatoes. Like you have a really interesting like conspiracy with the Catholic church, which stop me if you've heard that before. Um, <laughs> ah, Catholic church. Um, but, um, but yeah, like I really dug this. Um, I, I really enjoyed the writing, um. I felt like it was really compelling. Um, I I was super excited to see Mike Choi uh, as the artist for this. I had just um, finished um, X-Men Second Coming 
uh, event from like 2010 and he was the main artist on on that and i like he was like my new favorite artist after that like so like um and and we kind of talked about this uh, this i think this came out earlier so you know it's really interesting to see how like an artist's portfolio develops over the years so i think this was some of his earlier work um i didn't take to it as much as i did the x-men stuff that came several years later but so i enjoyed that um and anytime that i get a greg land cover is is a-okay by me so like there were some fantastic greg land covers on on those issues as well in witchblade so um i really enjoyed this it's like a super quick read um and you know i'm definitely intrigued um to pick it up further uh especially if you saying it keeps getting better and better and i totally agree this is a great jumping on point and um i could definitely see this coming to the screen um you know, with like the evolution of, you know, effects that we've seen in Hollywood now, like this seems like a much more doable thing than um, than it was, you know, several years ago. And I'm going to go ahead and butcher somebody's name right now because I'm really horrible with names. But an, another artist actually eventually joins uh, Ron Mars on this book and is uh, on the book with him for the bulk of his run. And that's uh, Stefan Sajic. And I'm sure I butchered that name horribly, but he's a primarily digital artist. He does these this incredible digital paintings, basically. And the interior art is stunning. It is uh, moody and atmospheric. He does incredible work with kind of bringing that that horror vibe to life that I'm talking about for, for this property. And uh, I, I can tell you that uh, choice work here is really good, but... But Sajik owns the book when he takes over. It's it's visually so distinct from anything else that was on the market at the time. Um, it's it's really really um, it, it really grabs you. Yeah, and our extra credit nerds will recognize that name as as the writer and artist on Harleen, one of Dave's previous recommendations. So um, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to see what comes up in this series as well. All right, Chris. Final page-to-screen adaptation. What you got? I'm going super recent here, but um, I've read this event twice. I read it first cold, just the main issues. And then I read it after I read my previous nerd commendation, the Jason Aaron Complete Thor run. But I'm going with War of the Realms by Jason Aaron and the art by Russell Doderman. Two of my favorite creators uh, in comics right now, Jason Aaron knows how to write Thor um, and Russell Dauterman's art is simply a spectacle like the splash pages um, in this series will literally like take the breath out of your chest um, my personal favorite is like the splash page where Odin comes into battle with the Valkyries um, and then like Odin and, and Freya like their last stand um, against Malekith and his dark forces is super like emotional and it's beautiful to watch. Um, for those of you that are new to this series, War of the Realms is basically the culmination of like seven or eight years of, of Jason Aaron's work on Thor. Um, also with a little bit of his work on Avengers, he joined that title and took over that title like two, three years ago. So he, he planted some seeds there. But basically, it's the Malekith we should have gotten in Thor of the Dark World, who we saw a little bit of. And then they were so enamored by Loki, they just made him the main villain. Um, but yeah, Malekith, like, it's like Loki on steroids in this, in this event and throughout the entire Aaron Thor run. Um, basically, Malekith wants to take over 
all of the eight realms. Um, and he hands over, like, so he creates this unholy alliance. Um, and then, like, he takes over all the eight realms. And then, like, Midgard, he gives one of the e- one of each of the continents to, like, one of his allies. Like, you have frost giants taking over North America. You have the angels um, taking over Africa. And all these different continents are divided up. Um, so it's super, super interesting. And, and it's just the culmination of this. And then it's just literally what it's, as advertised, War of the Realms. And you're going back and forth between these magical realms. You're going to... Niflheim, you're going to Jotunheim, you're going to Alfheim, you're going to all these magical places. And that's some of my favorite stuff from the MCU is where we get to go to a new world. When I first saw Asgard portrayed in the first Thor movie, that movie had its issues. It was a little cheesy. Um, it's a Kenneth Branagh, you know, production, so go figure. It's going to be super Shakespearean and like take itself way too seriously. But when you first see Asgard, like it's breathtaking. When I watch Black Panther at least once or twice a month. That opening scene where they go into Wakanda and you see it in its full effect for the first time, it brings tears to my eyes. You know, the music helps, but it brings tears to my eyes every single time. You know, when she says, like, we're home. Like, it's it's so beautiful. So if you take that and you just exponentially just throw that out there and if you get to see all of these different realms that that come from Norse mythology and you go from that and then my favorite thing about this series um and I texted this to you is like I love how Jason Aaron understands each and every one of his characters like it's really amazing like of course he's going to know how to write Thor he's been doing it for seven or eight years and that's been his primary you know big name assignment at Marvel but even his Spider-Man stuff, like, can we just give him the Spider-Man, a Spider-Man title right now? Because I've read Spider-Man all my life. I've read every issue of Amazing. I've read every issue of Spectacular. I want Jason Aaron writing Spider-Man because his quips are, like, spot on. That's exactly something Peter would say. His Frank Castle is perfect. His Logan is perfect. Like, I love his character interactions. Like, there's a scene where um, Spider-Man meets... Thor's mother Freya and like Brunhilde the Valkyrie is like do you lay eggs are you gonna lay eggs inside me and like this is it's just hilarious and then uh Dave texted me his personal favorite is when uh she Hulk who is now Hulk proper in comics like she says dwarves smash and like the dwarves of Niflheim are like she's a great speaker like it's so great the character work in this and it is the most one of the most fun things i've had reading comics like it's just between the art and the character work and the writing it's just fun and i could totally see this coming to the screen especially after seeing something like thor ragnarok take place i i love this series i go back to it often and i'd love to see it on the screen yeah so i uh, i did my homework <laughs> uh and i have to say i totally agree with you this was awesome um, I'm, I've, you know, never made a secret out of the fact that I'm more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy when it comes to the comic books, but this was just way too much fun. It's got big summer popcorn blockbuster movie written all over it. And there's so much to love here. Uh, I really, really loved the portrayal of Jane Foster in, in this story. 
And I'm particularly interested now in going back and actually reading her run as Thor, which I have not gotten to yet. So although she's not Thor anymore, she's very much connected to the Asgardians. It's a ton of fun to watch her running around with a sword while Norse mythology is raining down around her ears. Superheroes everywhere, and there's this this recent cancer survivor with her sword just cutting through the enemy. It was absolutely a fantastic portrayal of that character. And I agree with you on Malekith. I was so disappointed with how he was written in, in Thor The Dark World, especially because I believe he was uh, portrayed by Christopher Eccleston. Who, That's correct. Who I absolutely adore. And his his very brief run on uh, Doctor Who still stands as one of my absolute favorite versions of that character. He's just such a good actor. Isn't he coming back to Doctor Who? Did I see that somewhere? Yeah, he is, but not to the television series. He's coming to Big Finish Audio Productions, which is already a huge deal because he had apparently said multiple times he's never going to do Doctor Who again. So there's there's definitely a conversation to have about Big Finish. I think I have my next nerd commendation. Um, I, I also love the time travel in the end, the idea of uh, uniting different uh, versions of the character of Thor from different parts of his history to fight together. It's just, there was so much fun. And, and the humor is so spot on in this. I very rarely laugh out loud anymore when I read superhero comics, but, but this, I had to laugh out loud several times. So yeah, I would love to see this on the big screen. I could totally see this working, especially with uh, Hemsworth as Thor. I think he would be perfect in an adaptation of this kind of story. Yeah, and this is just me reiterating my previous nerd commendation about Jason Aaron's Thor, because um, one of the most powerful things about that whole run is exactly what you just referenced with like the Thor from all ages. Like you have the all-father from the future, you have current Thor, and then you have the Thor of the Vikings, this young, brash, like, Lemmy Adam Scoob type of Thor, and, like, just how they work together. Like, it's super, you know, cool to see come to fruition here. But, yeah. Um, so that wraps up our byword Big Talk for the week. We came at you with three uh, pitches each to put on the big screen. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, when we return from our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations for another week. All right, geeky chicks and gentle nerds, we're back here on the Nerd Byword for our final segment, Nerd Commendations. Dave, what you got for us? So this week I'm combining my love of history and my love of video games to talk about the history of video games. Uh, specifically, The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. I'm a gamer. I have been most of my life. I think I was destined to love this book. Uh, Stephen Kent wrote a 500-page tome of a book tracing the origins of the video game industry uh, through uh, its origin point, uh, the 70s, the 80s, and the 1990s. Uh, the book is compulsively readable. Kent brings together interviews from most of the main players across company, companies like Atari, Activision, Nintendo, Midway, and beyond. He peppers fascinating quotes from his subjects throughout the book. The research is sublime. Uh, he actually, early on in the book, explores... Uh, coin-operated entertainment, and the legal hurdles that pinball 
actually faced uh, in the United States to be considered entertainment rather than gambling. And in many places, actually, pinball machines were outlawed for a while, which I had never heard about. And then how pinball eventually led to arcade video game machines. Uh, the book is also unabashedly honest. Uh, the legendary intoxication of early Atari employees, for example, is explored in detail. Even the story of Steve Jobs' brief stint working with Atari is recounted. The book is basically must-read material for any gamer who loves the medium across all gaming generations. There is one drawback to the book, though, and that is that it was published in 2001. So the last 20 years of gaming history are not covered. I would love to see an updated version of this book that uh, adds additional chapters. But still, what's here is amazing and well worth the read. A uh, special shout out actually also to Dan Warren, who reads the audiobook. I listened to most of this book rather than read it because of my busy schedule, and he did a fantastic job. I'm super intrigued by this, and like I love that we usually go for under-the-radar picks for this because, you know, like we've said before, it really brings to light some some hidden gems, some diamonds in the rough, if you will. So yeah, like I, I love history, and I feel like this is like a documentary in text, so I'm, I'm super interested to check this one out. My wife has a bunch of uh, audiobook credits on Audible. She has like 11 or 12 credits, so I may have to steal one of those for this. I think you will not be disappointed. It is definitely well worth the read. How about you, Chris? What is your nerd commendation for this week? I'm going uh, over 400 years in the past. Kind of. Um, I'm nerd commending Marvel 1602, uh, written by the man himself, Neil Gaiman, and penciled uh, by Andy Kubert, who's one of my favorite artists. And I'm going to go ahead and confess. Uh, you know, we talked about the Catholic Church earlier forgive me father for i have sinned this is the only piece of writing by neil gaiman that i have ever read um we've had now two uh guests come on our show and say that they are currently reading or like have huge love for neil gaiman's sandman and i just like nod and agree because of my late start to you know reading comics and, and stuff so I'll have to put that on my to-do list as well but Marvel 1602 I read this a couple of years ago and it's such a fantastic like retelling reimagining um, so I'm gonna read the synopsis here on on Amazon all is not well in the Marvel Universe in the year 1602 as strange new powers are emerging and such heroes as spider-man Nick Fury dr. Strange Daredevil and Captain America appear in the waning days of the reign of Queen Elizabeth so like basically what happens is like you know uh, in the court of Queen Elizabeth her court magician slash mathematician is Stephen Strange and like all of these strange weather patterns are occurring and all these magical things and he has to figure out what's going on. And it's just like a really interesting like alternate universe retelling of, of the Marvel universe. Like you have Sir Nicholas Fury is like a knight errant. Um, and then you have like the Fantastic Four, like Sir Ben Grimm. Um, uh, I love the way that he writes Doctor Doom in this. And it even like spawned... Um, uh, like different spin-off series with like the Spider-Man series, a Fantastic Four series and everything. So um, you have interesting like historical fiction tie-ins to like the lost colony of Roanoke um, in the new world. And it's just really, really interesting. It's a really fun, um, you know, just deep dive. You can read um, the whole thing on Marvel Unlimited. 
Um, you can also get it uh, in a paperback trade for about 30 bucks. Um, um, it's also available, the whole thing on, on Comixology for 10 bucks if you want to read it digitally. But I, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And it's super cool. And um, now I guess I better go read Sandman because everybody tells me I have to. I'm just literally giving you the stink eye right now about your <laughs> about the fact that you've not read much Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is the man. He is one of my all-time favorite writers. But I will freely admit, this is one of those moments where I can tell that I'm more of a, a DC and you're more of a Marvel. I feel like we're in one of those old PC and Mac commercials. Huh? Yes. but uh, That was the initial pitch for this podcast, guys. That was the initial pitch. Like, uh, PC and Mac, Marvel, DC. That was our original idea. But yeah, I've, I've not read 1602, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me that I wasn't even aware of this series and that it was written by Neil Gaiman. So I'm going to be jumping on this like a dog on a bone because I adore Neil Gaiman's writing. Uh, n- never get tired of his stuff. In fact, um, uh, an episode of Doctor Who that he wrote is probably one of my all-time favorite episodes of that show. Uh, where he goes, I shall follow. And if that means that I have to travel to 1602... To check out the Marvel Universe, then I am there. I'm definitely putting this on my to-read list. Alright, ladies and gents. That wraps up another week and another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for stopping by. Um, If you enjoy what you're listening to, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, on YouTube, audio only, but... We're working on it. Um, you can also find uh, stuff on nerdbyword.com. And you can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at nerdbyword, on Facebook, at the nerdbyword, and individually on Twitter and Instagram, at thatnerddave and at thatnerdchris. And I will go ahead and tell you that we are especially excited for our next episode where we're going to do uh, something a little different. Um, going back to that idea of how uh, the two of us are two very different comic book readers, uh, we assigned each other homework and basically focusing on our favorite comic book runs. And we're going to be swapping some stories as each of us now has read a favorite of the other. And I think we're going to have some very interesting discussions about what we assign to each other next week. Do we want to go ahead and tell them? Why don't we? All right. So I think I teased this in the Brian Q. Miller interview, but Dave assigned me, go figure, Stephanie Brown Batgirl. So I read volume one and volume two, issues one through 24 of Stephanie Brown Batgirl. And I was assigned to read uh, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men run, including issues one through 24 and two specials. All right, so that's something to look forward to next week. We're going to pick each other's brains on what we thought and uh, how we're trying to convert each other to DC and Marvel, respectively. Um, so, yeah, stick around, guys. Stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashby Design, as well as public domain comic panels. Find us online at nerdbyword.com, on Twitter at nerdbyword, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com.